Let's open our Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. It's been stated this morning that the purpose of Lighthouse was to uh, help raise up a, a clear testimony to the gospel in Rollsville. I did notice, though, when I was on the way here, within a half a mile, there were three Baptist churches right, you know, within it's half a mile. I don't even know if it's a half a mile. <laughs> I don't know if they all had some connection to the past or not, but we're not really concerned about that. We're just not, It's like the testimony I've heard this morning about, uh, you know, wanting to do the Lord's will, wanting to follow the Bible. And uh, that's what we want to do today, want to do this week. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here and uh, probably give a, some testimony this afternoon and maybe some before we preach each night. But uh, Luke chapter 18 and verse 18 says, A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus has been... Uh, preaching here, he's been given some of the parables, and I don't know if he'd sort of stopped speaking for a while or whatever, or maybe this guy, it, you get the impression from the other Gospels, it, it's this, this uh, instance recorded in the other Gospels, at least two others. You get the impression that this is more of a personal one-on-one type of thing, and uh, he didn't just call out or something like that, he came up to Jesus. And he asked that question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is, God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when he had heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had heard it, uh, and they that had heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left home, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. So our message this morning is titled, One Thing Lacking. Let's pray. Father, I do 
rejoice today in uh, the things heard, experienced. Rejoice in the work that you've done and are doing here at Lighthouse. And Lord, I do pray that this would, the impact of this would be that you'd have glory in this church and that you would work in our hearts and that we would receive the word with meekness. And Lord, that it would save souls and sanctify those who already know you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The big question, of course, among all religions and all churches is how does somebody have eternal life? How do you get to heaven? Some secularists would have us to believe, you know, that uh, we were born, we live, we die, and that's all there is to it. There's no, nothing beyond the grave. There's no real purpose in life, except, I guess, to carry out some type of evolutionary uh, principle that's not even alive or anything. And yet there is within all of us, I think, this knowledge, this understanding that, that there is something beyond death, even among those that want to deny it very strongly. There's, we never really cease to exist. We're going to continue to be who we are. The Bible teaches, of course, that not only will the soul continue to live, but that our bodies will also be resurrected and rejoined with our soul and spirit. And then we'll be judged and we'll live for all eternity, either in eternal torment of hell or in the bliss of heaven. And that's why the most important question in life is the one that this man asked, how does a person obtain eternal life? And there's a lot of confusion about that. There's a lot of confusion because there's poor teaching about it, but most of the confusion just comes from our own sinful lack of understanding our own sin nature. And in our passage, we have a religious man who asked that question, and Jesus gave him the answer. And whatever preachers may say, whatever different religions and denominations or so forth, whatever their opinion is or whatever your or my opinion is, the authoritative answer is given by God in this passage. This man had done a lot of religious works. He was a very respected, honored man. Uh, he was a very earnest about his religion and so forth and about getting to heaven. But Jesus told him that he was lacking one thing, the most important thing. That's what I would ask you today. In the testimony of this morning, it's already been mentioned that some here who thought they were saved have since then really truly been saved. It certainly happened at Calvary. And maybe the Lord would open someone else's mind and understanding today about the need to be genuinely have eternal life, to be saved. But are you lacking what is needed to get to heaven? And when you stand before God in the day of judgment, will that be a time of intense horror? or unbelievable joy, mercy, and grace. I want us to look at this. There are four things we're going to consider in this passage. And the first one is the fatal ignorance of the human soul. The fatal ignorance of the human soul. We see that this man, and virtually all of us, this man had no assurance of eternal life. In verse 18, he said, A certain ruler asked him, saying, 
good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? As I said, this, um, this passage, this instance is also recorded in Matthew and Mark. They tell us that this man came to Jesus, came up to him. He asked him what he could do about to inherit eternal life. He's called a ruler, which means that he was either the head or sort of a, they would call him elder over a local synagogue. The word synagogue is just like the word church. It just means a congregation, but it would be a Jewish place to worship. So either he was the head of a synagogue or perhaps he was a member of the Sanhedrin which is a political religious ruling body in Israel, the most powerful body in Israel, you know, apart from the Roman government. But that means he was very devout in his religion. He was young ho on this thing. Other people had would have had regard for him. They would have respected him. Uh, he had attained a position of leadership because of his, his, his devotedness and so forth. And Matthew tells us, though, that he was young. Now, in Israel, they put a lot of weight on age, and so this is a, a, an accomplished man. And, of course, all the Gospels tell us that he was rich. I don't know if he inherited that or he earned it or whatever. So we have a man that's perhaps in his 30s, maybe at the most in his 40s, devoutly religious, financially successful, in a position of religious authority, obviously a very intelligent man, somebody's thinking, evaluating things, very capable young man. Um, however, in spite of all these accomplishments and in spite of what everybody else thought about him, he's troubled by the fact that he has no assurance what will happen to him when he dies. I don't know that people like to admit that, but I think that thought's a lot more common that we would gather from talking to people. People today like to say that nobody can really know whether or not you'll go to heaven or hell when you die, or even if you, there is such a thing at either one of those. But this man hoped that Jesus would give him the answer that he needed to his question. And as I said, he, he called Jesus good master. That is, he did regard Jesus as someone who would be an authoritative, uh, somebody give him authoritative answer in this matter. Now, folks, it's a terrible thing if you don't know what's going to happen to your soul when you die. I, I can't. I have to admit, I never thought much about dying when I was young. But I had some friends that died young when I was in high school. And people die at all ages. This is a question that we need to get settled right now if you haven't already. This man was very earnest. It says he came running up and got on the ground before the Lord. Mark says that he, he, he kneeled in respect, I guess, to the Lord. And, uh, after all he had done for many years, how diligent he'd been, how he'd taught others, how he'd been an example, a testimony, as we would say to somebody else, he still was troubled in his soul because he had no assurance. In Matthew 19 verse 20, it said this, the young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? What a question. Perhaps it had been a, a nagging subconscious thing that, was, that he thought about when he was alone. Maybe when he went to bed at night. Maybe he was getting up in the morning. When he was, of course, he wouldn't be 
when he's driving his cart or something like that. <laughs> uh, I tend to think when he was riding in the car. But uh, apparently this is something that he couldn't get rid of. It troubled him, bothered him. Maybe he was afraid of dying, but he had no assurance and he needed some help. And I'm asking you today, do you have assurance of eternal life? Another thing about this fatal ignorance is this man had not recognized that Jesus is God. And if we were to get all the people in the Baptist churches in this little area and put them all together, and they were honest about this, I think we'd probably be shocked how many people did not believe that Jesus is God. In verse 18, it says, A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. So this young ruler had heard about Jesus. His fame was all over the nation from the healing, the miracles and so forth, the powerful preaching, his holy life, how he was not afraid to speak the truth. And uh, he knew that some regarded Jesus as the Messiah. Now we say Jesus Christ all the time and never think about Christ, but Christ and Messiah are the same term. and that, that was the major character in all the Old Testament. Uh, the promised one come from God who was going to establish Israel as a world empire and rule and eternal, have an eternal kingdom and so forth. So he, this man no doubt regarded Jesus as Messiah and he, that's the reason he called him good master. You don't call, call a, an ordinary rabbi uh, good master. This is a title of the highest respect. However, Jesus objected to this man saying that, uh, and he said that only God is entirely good. Why are you calling me good? Either Jesus was a man, and therefore he was a sinner, or he was indeed God and absolutely good. Now, this man was, uh, to be in the position where he was, he had to be a diligent student of the Old Testament. And he should have known, therefore, that Messiah promised in the Old Testament, was God in human flesh. Isaiah said in Isaiah 7, 14, we're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah would say there, or God would say through Isaiah, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. All these are titles in a saying that uh, about the Lord himself. Uh, Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever the the scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with all of gladness above thy fellows. So here's a conversation between God. God speaking with God. And of course that, applied, that passage is applied to the Lord Jesus. Micah 5 2 talks about someone whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting, someone who never had a beginning, not a created guy like Jehovah's Witnesses say, but the Creator. And so this man had come to Jesus regarding him as a great teacher who could give him some instruction, but to have eternal life, he had to believe that Jesus was God, God in human flesh, the God-man, that he came to this earth to live as a man, who in eternity past was just in the glory of heaven, and then to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. 
In fact, Jesus said in John 8, verse 24, I said therefore unto you, that ye shall die in your sins, if ye believe not that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. You know, if you look at your King James Bible, you'll see that He's in italics. He's saying, I am, I am Jehovah, I am the great God, the, ever, the all-existing, the all-powerful God. And so the fact that Jesus is God the Son and equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit is an essential doctrine of saving faith. This man was ignorant of who Jesus was, in his understanding at least. Do you believe that Jesus is the eternal God, the creator of the universe, I don't know, really, universe is kind of a evolutionary word. I, he's the creator of creation. That's probably the best way to say it. Do you believe that? And in order to save us from our sins, that God had to take a human body and live on this earth a sinless life and then shed His blood to pay for our sins and rise from the dead to give us eternal life? Do you believe those things? To not or to not believe this truth, to not know or not believe this truth is a fatal ignorance. There's one third part of this fatal ignorance. This man did not realize that because he was sinned, had sinned, he was condemned to hell. In verse 19, it says, And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. Wow. This fellow didn't have an assurance that he had an eternal life, but he kept all the commandments. He didn't understand why he didn't have assurance. I've been keeping the commandments, why don't I have assurance? And the reason why was like every other person who's ever lived. He was a sinner, but he didn't know or he did not understand what that meant. Jesus pointed him to some of the Ten Commandments um, to try to help him realize what that meant, that he had sinned against God and therefore was under the condemnation of God. However, his understanding of or lack of understanding of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man was so shallow <laughs> that he thought he had kept God's commandments. It's interesting that Jesus mentioned commandments 5 through 9 of the Ten Commandments. The fifth one is honor thy father and the mother. Obey them, honor them, love them, support them, defend them, care for them. Probably most of us don't do too well right there. The sixth commandment, we're not to kill. We know that means to not to unjustly take life. There's plenty of killing that is just. But Jesus said it also regarded that inner compulsion of hatred that we have for people. He said that if we hate someone without a cause in Matthew chapter 5, that we've committed a multi, uh, 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 committed murder. And then he mentioned 
Number seven, you should not commit adultery. And again, we all try to downplay these things that mankind does, but it really, that command is saying that there should never be any sexual activity outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. Certainly a place where, in fact, Jesus said if a, if a man even looks on a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. The eighth commandment, we're not to steal. We're not to take something without the knowledge or without permission of the person who owns it. The ninth one, we're not to bear false witness. Never say anything untrue about another person. You know, you think about the audacity of somebody to say, I've kept these from my youth up. And yet, I'm saying to you that virtually all of us think this way. At this point, Jesus did not refer to the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet. We're not to want or desire or to seek after things that God has not given to us. In fact... Really, the one about not coveting goes well with the first four that talk about our relationship with God. Because what we covet tends to become an idol for us and take the place of God. And our desires are on those things that we seek after rather than of the Lord. But this man, without any hesitation, said that he'd kept these commandments from his youth. Now, there's no doubt that he'd been earnest about this that he had endeavored to obey. But his mistake was to think this, that because he had tried, and because he'd done better perhaps than a lot of other people, he was guiltless before God. Now, I don't know how you ask people about, about whether they're going to heaven or not, and ask them why, and they'll say, well, I've, I'm a good person. Yet the Bible says, whosoever shall keep the whole law and offend in one point, he's not going to get in. Not in one point. You know, I was I preached at a funeral of a man who was a deputy sheriff, and uh, there was a bunch of, law, quite a crowd of law enforcement there. I said, you know, they tend to think of people as lawbreakers or people that keep the law. But all you have to do is ask this question. How many of you broke the speed limit on the way over here today? Now, that's we say, well, God's not keeping on whether we break the speed limit or not. Well, yes, He is. He says we're obeying the ordinance of man. But all the ten... I, 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 it would be hard for me to believe that, there's, that every one of us here has not violated every one of the Ten Commands over and over and over again. Many people have mistaken idea that judgment day, that God's going to take your good and He's going to take your bad, you know, and if you tip a little bit in favor of good, you're all right. You're okay. It's just kind of a bouncing or weighing out act. If your good's a little bit more, you're okay. They don't realize that their soul 
and their entire nature is defiled by sin. I've said this over and over, and I think it helps it. I don't become a liar by telling a lie. I lie because I am a liar. You understand the difference? You can take a hatch a, a duck out of an egg and put him on the water and he can swim. Okay? But you put one of us in the water when we were first born and you, you got a dead baby. We sin because we're sinners. Sinning doesn't make us sinners. Well, that's just what we are. That's the way we live. It's a part of our everyday life. And so people are guilt, ignorant of their guilt before God, and that is a fatal ignorance. If we don't understand the problem that we have with God, we're on the way to damnation. And so there was a fatal ignorance of the human soul. Secondly, there was required choices for eternal life. Jesus told him. He told him there had to be the earthly death of true repentance in verse 21. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful for he was very rich. Now, Mark gives an important detail here that uh, Luke doesn't. In Mark 10, verse 21, it says, "When Jesus, Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. That's an interesting statement, quite a revealing statement. He saw the earnestness of this young man. He saw that he was an upstanding good guy and so forth. He, he actually came to Jesus, asked him this, and it says that he loved him. He wanted to help him. He would have been glad. He desired. In fact, Jesus came to die for that man's sins. He loved him. And for that reason, he told him exactly what he needed to hear in order to escape the penalty of hell and to inherit eternal life. This man was not only very rich, but he loved money. He was covetous of earth possession. You know, the world tends to, they say the, that money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. It's the love of money. It's the things that we do with and for money and all that. But this man was, he, he loved money. He was covetous of earthly possessions. He had violated the tenth commandment. And really, if you violate the tenth, if, if you're covetous, you'll commit adultery. You'll steal. You'll lie. You'll, wor- you'll worship false gods. You'll do all the rest of them if you're a covetous person. I believe that's probably why he's put the last one, just kind of sum everything up. But this man had been diligent. He had been earnest in religious works. He'd no doubt given money for religious works, probably to get something else. But the real love and pursuit of his heart was money. He was an idolater. That's what Colossians tells us and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so the reason that this man, Jesus told this man to sell everything that he had and give it to the poor was because he was covetous. Given to the poor doesn't earn anybody a place in heaven. If that were true, some of the most wicked people have ever lived, but who give a lot of money, would be in heaven. Well, God wouldn't be much of a God, a holy God, if that were the case. 
This man had been diligent and so forth. He, Jesus let this man know if he's going to inherit eternal life, really, he must repent. That's what he's telling him to do. Uh, it says, not by works of righteousness in Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. In fact, you don't have to live too long to realize that giving money is not, a lot of times, it's not righteous at all. Something, some motive about it is evil or wicked. But Jesus told him he had to repent. He had to give up the one thing that had a hold on his heart to anything, anything that's sinful, anything that takes place that God alone deserves. And so repentance is still the requirement. It's giving up of sin, giving up of our lives, actually. And this is what Jesus preached all the time. People think Jesus preached love. He did. But this is what he said, and it says in Matthew 4, 17, from that time, in other words, all of Jesus' preaching, from that time began Jesus to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he preached about, repentance. In Luke 13, 3, there are people that came up to him, and they asking about something they heard in the news about these people dying. He said, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Everybody's in the same boat. We're in the same condition. We need to repent. And repentance is not just stopping some sin. It's not deciding to do better or to give up something. True repentance is something that's far greater than that. It is dying to self. My life dying, my desires, my goals, me. In Luke 9, verses 23 to 25, it says, Jesus said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away, that is, cast away from God? We can't hold on to our sin and just add religion. We can't just hold on to our sin and join the church, be a deacon, sing in the choir, whatever it is, that doesn't take away sin. We're talking about genuine repentance here. It's not just, again, stopping some sin. It, you, you have to realize that you're a sinner who deserves the judgment of God. That I'm on my way to hell because of that. And we repent of who I am. My life, my actions, my love, myself, my will. I'm turning my back on that. That's repentance. If there's anything that you will not give up for Christ, you will not be saved. In fact, we had a guy in our church who gave testimony about that recently. He's in his 30s. Andrew Reynolds. He'd prayed all these times over the years when he had questions. Same, same question this guy had. He didn't know if he was saved. And it came down to, he was going to, some things that come up in his life that, and the pastor had been talking to him. And he said to us, I, I don't know that I'm saved. He said it several times in meeting with us. But we were going to try to help him along and I thought over the next day, I said, we met the next day, I said, you know what Andrew, if you don't know you're saved, why would I let you be a member of our church? 
That's what that's where you get into church if you have a testimony of salvation. And it made him angry. But he went back and started talking to the Lord about it. He said, You know what? There are things all these times over these years when I prayed and asked the Lord to save me, but I never planned to give up those sins in my life. I was still living for myself. There wasn't any genuine repentance from sin. And that's what Jesus was telling this man. A required choice is repentance. And the other part of that, the other side of that, just like the two sides of one coin, is there had to be a divine love of genuine faith. Now, in verse 22, actually, you know, he said that he lacks one thing, which proves what I'm going to say. But he gave more than one thing when he said that. Now, when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. You know, you could give up everything and not follow the Lord. But that was one thing together. Although people focus on the fact that Jesus told this man to sell everything, you know, and people talk about taking a vow of poverty and that kind of stuff. The heart of the command comes at the end of that verse when he says, follow me. The faith that saves a soul from hell is not just a mental belief that Jesus is God. That's essential. That He's the Savior, that's essential. Satan believes all that. He believes that Jesus is God. He believes the only Savior. He knows all those things. He believes he's fully convinced of it. But the faith that saves a soul from hell is a faith that sets its affection upon God and makes Him the center, the love of our souls. We know what the great commandment is. It's in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. Jesus confirmed this. Matthew 22 verse 37 and 38. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And when he said, you got to follow me, I make all the decisions. I tell you what to do. I tell you when your life is going to end. I tell you who you're going to marry. I tell you what kind of job you're going to have. You follow me. I become the Lord of your life. To inherit eternal life, a soul must make the choice to love God. We're not talking about living a perfect life. We're talking about making a choice, a decision that directs everything that we do to follow God's will. And Peter actually said, we've done that. Look at verse 28. Then said Peter, then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. Is Peter a perfect man? No, but he had to put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and take Him as His Lord and Savior. You know, when Jesus first pointed this man, the Ten Commandments, He didn't mention the first four. It had to do with our relationship with God. Thou shalt have no other gods before Me. Thou shalt not make any graven images and so forth. God wants us to love Him. That comes first before any of our relationship with somebody else. That's the most important thing. And saving faith is a love that puts our complete trust in Him 
and decides to follow Him and do His will. And I'm asking you, here in southeastern United States, in North Carolina, in just a little while, just a, a few miles here from this famous Baptist seminary here, I'm asking you, do you have that kind of faith? Is your faith a surrender to the Lord God and receiving Him as your Savior? Have you made the choice to give yourself to the Lord and make Him your all in all to follow Him? Well, this man was earnest. He was very diligent. But he was lacking what he needed to get to heaven. He needed to put complete trust of his soul in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a third point here then. Jesus tells him after this what he needed to do that it was impossible for a worldly soul to be saved. There is a self-condemning choice of the worldly soul that we see in verse 23. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. So when this young man heard what was required, he was overcome with sorrow. I mean, he was really earnest about this matter of eternal life, but Jesus plainly told him how he could have it. It was very simple. It's something that anybody can do. It's something that everybody understands. However, this man was so overcome with sorrow because he wanted it desperately to be saved and to live for money at the same time. He wanted to hold on to the things that he had. Apparently, he liked the way his life had been turning out. But he was not willing to pay the price. And though he had the answer to how he could get eternal life, he left with an even greater burden. All this time, when he'd been thinking and asking, he gets the answer and he leaves. Man, that guy must have been miserable at that point. I don't know how, many, how rich that man was. I don't know how much money he had, houses he had, but he made a foolish choice. Jesus said, what, what's going to profit you? You've gained the whole world and you spend eternity in hell. You know? Over the years, I've seen people reject Christ and condemn themselves for the silliest, shallowest things. I remember sitting in a, a couple's house. They were not married. They were living together. And witnessing, and the girl... Was appeared to be under deep conviction. She was asking questions. She was earnest, but her lover was sitting there with us. And as the questions went on and we were talking and so forth, she could see that he wasn't interested. And she made a decision just to put it off. Well, they got married. It didn't last very long. They got divorced. And, I mean, you're talking about a messy divorce. And it ended up with her drinking herself to death. For him. At least that's the way it seemed. I remember talking with a guy on the football team there at Clemson. Well, actually, I think we got, we were, got to talking in, at practice. And he came to my dorm room afterwards and asked him about this matter of salvation. And the guy was, he seemed to be really earnest. And as we're talking about the Lord and explaining the gospel and all that, he, he came, he said this. 
He said, if I get saved, well, I have to quit going downtown and dancing in the bars? Well, I was just a young Christian, and I thought, I said, well, Ray, what do you think? And I would tell you, his attitude changed just like that. He had no more interest. Going dancing in the bars. He never talked to him about it again. I, I, I'm kidding. He, I would say it was just like this guy. He seemed to really be concerned about his soul and just that one simple thing and he wasn't interested anymore. And I didn't even say, yeah, you got to quit that. Why? Why do we condemn ourselves? What is there in life that's worth trading for heaven? Would you be willing to burn in hell for a boyfriend? For a job? For your parents? A house? Your personal pride? Some Something you want to do in life? Some bucket list you want to keep or something like that that people seem to live for? When you make that decision... I'll tell you this, it's not like everybody says, it's not a harsh God condemning somebody to hell. It's that person making the choice to condemn themselves to hell. The self-condemnation. And with that, though, there's another aspect of it. The person choose to condemn himself or herself, but there is also this unchanging verdict of the sovereign Lord. Look at verse 24. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, the, the guys left, he said, how hardly, so he's now kind of addressing the people that are listening, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, who then can be saved? Now, this man, Jesus loved him. He wanted to save him. In fact, the Bible says that about all of us. God's not willing that any of us should perish, but all should come to eternal life. John 3, 16, the one verse that everybody knows, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus paid the ultimate price to purchase this man's soul and every one of us. However, He cannot and He will not I can guarantee you this. He will not save you if you do not repent and believe on Him. There's no other way. And when this man was so sorrowful and turned away, Jesus didn't say this, wait, wait a minute, wait. Let's talk about this a little bit more. He didn't do that. Jesus is not a psychologist. He didn't say, you know, well... We just got to have the right attitude about this. We just need some positive thinking here. He, he is also a poor businessman or salesman because he let this man get away without making a sale. In fact, from, according to many Baptists, he was a terrible evangelist because this guy was earnest and he didn't do the job. Jesus didn't do the job and get this man to pray the prayer. He didn't get him into baptismal waters. He didn't say this. Come back. Wait a minute. Maybe I didn't say it exactly right. No, Jesus told him the conditions. And when this man rejected God's terms, 
Jesus let him go. He can't change. You see, folks, God will not save any soul who rejects the Lord Jesus. In John 3, 36, it's so plain. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. If you reject Christ and hope that God will somehow or another let you into heaven, you're lying to yourself. That brings to the fourth point. And that is the blessed assurance for the believing disciple. Jesus identified the source of saving power. In verse 27, it says, And He said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. They are possible with God. The Jews believed that people were rich. That meant that if they were rich, they had the blessing of God. That's why they said, Well, who can be saved? If a rich person can't be saved, Abraham was rich, Daniel was rich, Moses, I guess he had a lot of power. He must have been pretty wealthy as well. If, if you're rich and they can't get into heaven, who can? Well, that's the right question. The answer is nobody. Nobody can by their own doing. But Jesus identifies here that says the things that are impossible with man, they are possible with God. God has the power. Here they were stunned, but they realized that Jesus saying it's, it's impossible, you know, for any of us to get it, to get to heaven. But it didn't stop there. He said it was possible through God. No sinner, just by giving up ourselves or trying to turn a new leaf, we 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 can't even do that. Everybody knows what New Year's resolutions are, right? That's a a day or two commitment that you're going to do something the rest of your life and it lasts about two hours, not even two days. We can't save ourselves. We can't decide to be better. Really, I'm amazed if somebody's been a drunkard and they, and they do stop. But that didn't mean they're saved. I talked with many sinners who didn't think they could be what God wanted to be. I remember talking, walking in the street there in Chapel Hill, witness to a young, young black man. And he's telling me some of the things he did. And I was saying, you know, the Lord is a Savior. He can save you. He said, I just don't think I could hold out. Well, he's right. He's right. He didn't have the power. But God is a Savior. I've talked with people over and over about it. He's almighty. He, he is the Savior. He is the one that can change us. All things are possible to him. If it's possible for God to live as a man, what is it that He can't do? He can rise from the dead. I remember talking with Sam Jones. I guess most all of you know Sam. On a New Year's Eve, I think he was about 29 then or something like that. And I talked to him and he admitted that he wasn't saved. Growing up there at Calvary. And I said, Sam, why don't you Why don't you trust him? And get saved. He says, Pastor, I don't think I can. 
He said, I've done so many wrong things. I lied about this all my life. He said, I don't even think the I don't think I can be. Tell you what, he got saved. I mean, the impact from one day to the next was unreal. But that was 30 years ago now. He's saved. The Lord's changed him. And the Bible says, wherefore he is able also to save them to the utmost. Completely. That come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth, to make intercession for him. So Jesus assured, he identified the source of saving power, and he guaranteed riches for heavenly faith. In verse 28, this is the last part of it. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he, Jesus said unto them, that was everybody in the sound of his voice, and to us. He said unto them, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that have left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. Have you ever really thought about that simple statement there? What would you have to give up in order to be saved? Sin? It is pleasurable for a season, the Bible says. Unbelief? Eternity in the lake of fire? Well, that's hard to give up, isn't it? You had to give up the guilt and misery of God's condemnation and His refusal to fellowship with you. Yeah, those things, but, you know, some people had to give up a lot. Some people lose their friends. I know some that have lost spouses because they got saved. That was painful. It cost a lot. Plenty of countries around the world, if you get saved, you're going to die. If you live in a Muslim country, your life is in jeopardy. But how can that be called giving up something in light of what you'll gain? Jesus said that there is not a single person, not a single person who would not gain manifold more in this present life. I don't know what everybody else's testimony is, but I know that's been true in my life. He replaces temporary pleasures of sin with eternal joy and peace and so forth. He, the friends that you have in sin who are not your friends, they're helping destroy your life. He gives you friends that love you. As we've heard today, people that will tell you the truth and help you and set you on the right path. Proverbs 10 verse 22 says this, The blessing of the Lord it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. You know, there's one bad thing about liking to eat. There's some consequences to eating 
too much. But everything that God gives, it says He adds no sorrow to it. And we're talking about heaven. People are waiting to get to heaven, but if I just look at the things that God has done in my life since I've been saved, that in itself is enough. The riches and the blessings. But folks, the rewards have hardly begun. He says in verse 30, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come life everlasting. I tell you frankly, when I read about the description of heaven, I, I don't I can't understand it. What would what would the world be like without any sea? No no reason for the sun or the moon or anything like that. And I read about, it says, the nations of saved people. Now, we, we say we got the best nation in the world. And in virtually every major city, people are rioting. Cities are wicked places. But in heaven, there's going to be nations of saved people who are like God. He'll never be sick. He'll never. He'll never shed a tear. There'll never be any pain. Never be any sorrow. And I think you've probably heard me say this. <laughs> but they will never experience the law of diminishing returns. Now, I'm going to try to enjoy, participate in that a little bit when we get to the dinner table. You know, you eat until you're satisfied, and then you keep eating, and you start feeling worse, actually. That's the law of diminishing returns. There never will ever be that in heaven. There'll never be a time, you know, you, you like to be around people, but after a while, I need to get away. We'll never grow tired of anything. Our relationship with God will never fail or anything or fade or anything like that. Everything will always be unimaginable. And it all comes back to this. Have you repented and believed on Jesus Christ? It seems so shallow just to say it's a deal. It's the greatest deal that you could ever be a part of. And yet, people were rejected. What about you?